0: Today, ladies and gentlemen, this is Daniel Tolson, and I'm a business coach at the Tolson Institute. If you are wanting to learn how to embrace change and navigate through disruption as a leader, then listen to the Leadership is Changing podcast with my good friend, Dennis Giannoutsos.
1: The perhaps the show is taking our listeners' leadership to another level by finding their balance between executive excellence and personal well being through stories that inspire real change. I believe we don't have enough effective leaders in the world today. And if we can get the leaders to step up and lead change, then they can inspire real change. Hey listeners, it's now time to adapt in our fast moving world. Hey listeners, welcome to today's episode. Great to have you with me, and I have a wonderful guest here. His name is Daniel Tolson. He's a business influencer. He impacts millions of people each year. Daniel speaks to corporate and public audiences on the subjects of emotional and social intelligence. Prior to founding his company, the Tolson Institute, Daniel was a leader of 17,000 camera crew uh, for Emirates Airlines, and he was uh, had a successful careers in real estate um, sales, marketing, uh, pawnbroking, second-hand dealing, a former Australian champion wakeboarder, and extreme games competitor. Yep, you you bet. I bet you he's really competitive. He has conducted a high-level consulting assignments with many billion-dollar-plus corporations in emotional intelligence and business model, model innovation. Daniel has travelled and worked in over 100 countries and six continents and lives in both Taiwan and Australia. Daniel, a massive welcome to you.
0: Mate, g'day. Thank you so much for having me here. It's a true pleasure.
1: And we're about to new the world today. Today I'm in
0: uh, Taipei, all the way up there in uh, Taiwan, so just a couple of islands north of your islands <laughs> and, <Just> my- <laughs> and a little bit south of uh, Japan. <laughs> about.
1: And how long have you been there since you last got out of there, I mean, with COVID and all that sort of stuff, how long have you been in, in Taipei? We've
0: been on lockdown here for two and a half years, and I think we've got about four local cases of COVID at the moment, and we're all panicking. We're panicking over four cases, which is lovely <laughs> because, for me, I,
1: I don't like to leave the island. I like to stay here. <laughs> it's too good to me. Sounds like New Zealand because, you know, we had one case. Whoop, we're in lockdown, massive lockdown, and then things start to go from there. But um, it's amazing how different people are panicking or different countries, but it's also amazing how people are handling fear at the moment because I think it's actually causing a lot of fear. Are you seeing that in your country as well? Taiwanese...
0: Are very fearful uh, to start with. There's huge panic. So, before the pandemic, we would always wear masks because we're living in close proximity. Now, to gauge the proximity in Sydney, uh, where I'm from, just in the northwest in um, Penrith, you know, we might be um, 600 uh, people per square kilometre in terms of population density. In my area, I'm 15,000 people per square kilometre. And just a little bit further up the road in Taipei, it gets up to 24,000 head per square kilometre. So we're very mindful of how fast disease spreads through a community. So we're very vigilant. (laughs) Um, I'm afraid of my wife, so there's a lot of fear here. Um, But the fear does lead to some good protective mechanisms for the entire community, not just for the self.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Good to know because you know, like I think that's one fortunate thing that we've had here in New Zealand, is that we're not living as close to each other as some other countries are, and uh, we sort of to be a little bit more spread out. I think Australia is even closer than New Zealanders, but at least Australia's better than where you are. Right? Would that be true? Well, we tend
0: to live in towers here. So the tower that I live in is fifteen stories high, and then there's six towers on one complex. So if it's going to spread. It's going to spread fast. And if I look out at my office window, uh, if I sneeze, I could sneeze into the next door neighbor's um, bathroom. Now, I'm not saying my place is small. It's considerably large compared to others, but it's just the proximity is so close. And it's packed, so we've got to be mindful here.
1: He said sneeze. He didn't say he can see into the, the neighbour's bathroom. Um, it was sneezing that he was talking about there. But, yeah, much <laughs> yeah, don't, don't want to look. No. <laughs> so, Daniel, you, t- you used to look after about, well, headed up an area which was an Emirates airline, 17,000 crew. I wonder what they have gone through in the last couple of years, in particular with COVID and that. I mean, I'm sh- you glad to be out of that kind of space? Re- really glad to be to be out of it. I look at my colleagues, and for them,
0: uh, there were so many people who wanted to leave before the pandemic, um, flying and being cabin crew is very toxic on the body. And so it's very easy to get sick. I remember flying when we had the swine flu outbreaks and I flew into China and our aircraft got grounded then and they brought on the medical team. They had the hazmat suits back on. Uh, They scanned everybody's temperature. And I remember one customer on the aircraft, they had a high temperature. So what they did, they quarantined the row in front of that person, that row and the row behind, and everybody was taken and put in quarantine back then. Now, on the aircraft, if there was a communicable disease going around, you would catch it. And I have been on aircrafts where we've had up to 14 cases of communicable diseases on one aircraft. And it got to the stage where we feared that the captain had got the disease. So we were planning to divert and to do an emergency landing. So in that environment, it's toxic to begin with because you're at 40,000 feet and disease spreads fast in that uh, vacuum environment, but also uh, toxic for those people who are having to do service-related jobs where they're touching things with uh, urine, faeces, spit, all of that. So, yeah, it's tough, and it's tough for them. They, their work role has totally changed. They look like
1: hazmat cabin crew now. Yeah, um, amazing what they've gone through, and the whole tourism industry worldwide just suffered big time. And you could just got to take your hat off to those guys, I mean the way that they've actually now starting to bounce back, which is going to be really great to see happen over the next few years and just be able to travel although you and I have actually have really enjoyed coaching in our own lounges or our own offices at home and so I don't know if I want to travel yet, but uh, I think you know for a guy who traveled with HP around the world, one year in particular, forty weeks I traveled, and there was all economy class because you know it was there was a policy. Um, I've always traveled, but I always use my points to try and upgrade into a premium economy at least. But still, as you said, it's a big toll on your body. Um, and it's a bit like people today who say to me that they're on conference calls and global roles or regional roles and that, and they're doing stupid hours and they go, what was it like for you when you were doing that kind of stuff? I went, mean, well, I feel like I was on constant jet lag. And I think for a lot of our listeners today, they're probably feeling that as well, that they're on constant jet lag. And I think one big thing that helped me around jet lag or two things actually was sleep, of course. And number two was getting out there in the sun to get our vitamin D. 100%.
0: I remember pre-COVID, I was traveling not as much as you, but I would get uh, sick for two weeks for every time I traveled. So if I went from If I went from say Taiwan to Sydney, I wouldn't sleep for 36 hours because I'd stay up all day. Uh, I might travel business class, but I can't sleep on the aircraft. And then I get there, then I'm awake till 11 or 12 that night. And what I'd find is I'd be sick for two weeks every time I traveled. So for me, travel ended up losing that joy because I was always sick. And then when I'd go uh, to Dubai, And then all the way to the UK again, I'd be sick. I wouldn't sleep for a week whilst I was there. And then by the time I came back and got into a normal routine, it took me three weeks to get back into shape. And so today, uh, would I love to do it again? I'd love the fantasy of doing it. But um, what I love is coming to my office with my tracksuit pants on and my Birkenstocks. So if you want to hire me and you're happy to have me in Birkenstocks and tracksuit pants, then I'm coming. But if not,
1: (laughs) I'm going to stay right here. Yeah, sorry about that. I'm not available, yeah. Hey, um, tell us a little bit more about your background in the sense of the competitive sports side of things. Um, a champion wakeboarder and extreme games competitor, what was that like? It was difficult and it was a lot of fun.
0: And it's a, a dichotomy because on the way to becoming an Australian champion athlete, it only – took me about 21 years to achieve that goal. So I started water skiing at age five, and then eventually I got to the peak uh, when I was 26. And throughout that journey, it was a big learning of both understanding my body and also understanding my mindset. So the big obstacles I had to overcome was I had uh, knees that used to collapse. I had hips that have actually taken me 41 years to get correct, because they've always clicked and the ligaments never joined properly. It's taken me 41 years to fix that. And then I had uh, two major knee operations. Um, Six guys tried to kill me and I had to learn to ride with plates, metal plates in the arm. So to get my goal, there was all of these obstacles on the way. And I wanted the goal, so I had to learn how to overcome the obstacles. So I think my first major obstacle was I was training at age 14 and I was trying a new trick. And when you're 14, you kind of bend. You don't tend to break. But I did a flip on the wakeboard, and my foot came out of the boot. And the board smacked me right up under the bottom part of the nose near the nostrils. And it just pushed the bone straight out of the skin of the nose. So I had this blood squirting everywhere. My eyes went black instantly. I couldn't breathe through my nose for about a month. And then we had to fly to Fiji for holidays <laughs> not long after that. So I had to go through that. And then once I had that first accident, then the fears started to kick in. So remember, that was kind of the turning point. Before that, I didn't have any fear. But then at 14, instead of focusing on doing the trick and landing it successfully, I would come into the trick and I'd doubt and second guess myself. And as soon as I hit the wake, I'd say to myself, am I going to land this? I think I'm going to crash and then these mental blocks really got in the way of riding really well and I knew that that was the turning point and everything seemed to go downhill from there although my skill set was getting better the fears and the doubts kept getting bigger and it was always am I going to try and crash am I going to crash and burn am I going to crash and break and then it really changed my focus and led to some major accidents after
1: that. Wow, what a story. That's awesome to share it, but I mean, not good for to go through it. But I think that's where a lot of leaders today, our listeners who are here, leaders, entrepreneurs, people who are doing certain things, they have those self-doubts. They, they tend to lack confidence at times because of something that's happened in the past and it's starting to actually affect them. Their skill set or the job that they take on may, go, may be bigger, but they have those self-doubts. And I'm... I'm working with them to help them understand where they're at with things as well. And I know you are too. And it's just amazing to see where people are. Those six inches between our ears are huge, aren't they? I mean, it's just amazing what goes in that little mind of ours and um, can talk us into it and talk us right out of it again. But it's just amazing. You know, as a competitive person, uh, the emotion that drives competition
0: is anger and frustration. Now, it's not anger at other people. It's anger and frustration within ourselves because we want to climb higher. We want to jump higher. We want to get to the top. And when we don't get there, we get really angry. So I remember that turning point for me led into years of frustration because I'd start to have a look at other people who were less skilled than me, and they were becoming Australian champions faster than me. They were less skilled but all of a sudden, they were doing bigger tricks than I was. And what I meant by less skills was I had my foundations down pat. I've been riding since five. I already had 10 years on them. They were less skilled. But now they're doing these bigger tricks, and they're going to the competition. And the competition rewarded the highest point scoring trick. It didn't necessarily uh, reward you for style or enthusiasm or confidence. It just rewarded you for the biggest trick. So now I'm doing what I love, but I've got people who've got half the experience and they're winning twice as fast. They're getting my trophy that I had set my goal for. They're winning my state title. They're winning my local competitions. And I was getting angry, but it actually didn't help me become a better rider. Instead of focusing on what I should have been focusing on, which was landing the trick successfully, I started to worry about, am I going to crash and burn? And it was that mindset that was the difference. My body was better. I'd been conditioned for longer, yet their mindset, they hadn't had those accidents yet. They hadn't learned that resiliency yet. And that was the frustrating part, seeing somebody younger, less skilled, winning faster. And I think the same in business. <laughs> you might have an established business for 20 years, and all of a sudden you see this young bloke who can't even grow a beard, who's still got pimples, no hair under his arm, making a million bucks. And you go to yourself, what the hell is going on? But it's a similar pattern, and it all comes back to that mindset.
1: Yeah, and I and I oh yeah, it's huge. It's huge. Now, Daniel, how did you get into leadership? Well, I think
0: for me, leadership was very situational. So, at school, or be it um, my physical body wasn't the best. Um, I was probably the most resilient. So I was willing to give everything a go at school. Uh, I become the swimming champion. I didn't become the swimming champion by default. I became the swimming champion because I had uh, collapsed bronchial tubes. And my grandfather, he had a pool in his backyard and he said, if you want to get over your asthma, you've got to learn how to swim. If you want to build up your lungs, you got to learn how to swim. So he would throw me in the freezing cold swimming pool in the middle of winter and make me swim. And he'd stand on the outside with his belt and he wouldn't let me out of the pool until I'd done my laps. <laughs> so I'd become such a good swimmer out of fear of getting the whip from my grandfather that I ended up winning all the competitions at school. And it wasn't because I was a good swimmer, it was just because I had to swim to survive. And I did it really good. So I got in there, I'd become the swimming champion. I also had problems with my knees and I'd run along and my knees would just literally collapse from under me. My hips would click, but I was resilient and I had to figure out how do I fix this problem? So how I fix it was just by doing more training more willingness to fall and get back up. And I'd go out and I'd win the sprint carnivals. I'd win, uh, win the long distance running carnivals. I would win the long jump, the high jump, the shot put, the javelin. And it wasn't because I was better than anybody else. I was just resilient. And I just kept trying more things than anybody else. And eventually I become the uh, team captain for sports in the, in the sports team in my house. And so that was my first leadership. And I wouldn't say I was outspoken because I was quite shy at school. Uh, I wouldn't say I was academic, so I didn't get the result through academia. I was actually rewarded for trying and failing and getting up again, and that was inspirational to others. So the leadership started at a young age, and then also through the wakeboarding. Um, Because I had my own style when I was wakeboarding, uh, I didn't win all the competitions uh, in terms of uh, the point scores. But there was a competition that I used to go and it was called Expression Session. And it was where they judged you on your individuality and flair on the wakeboard. It wasn't about you doing the uh, hardest trick. It was you doing the most basic trick and making it look mind-blowing. And I would always win that competition. And my biggest competitor was my brother. And I remember he won one competition, uh, which was called Uh, freestyle where he listed 10 tricks and he could list the 10 biggest tricks and win that. But when it came to freestyle, I would absolutely kill him. And so I beat him by so many points one day and he was so angry at me, he abandoned me and left me at the competition site which was about 90 minutes from my house. And so these leadership roles were being a leader in our sporting community. People used to look up to me, and I knew it was a big responsibility. So I always had to be mindful of my behaviors, and I was pretty wild. They used to call me Daniel Danger, and the kids would aspire to be like me, but I did have to keep a lot of those uh, bad behaviors behind uh, closed doors, or at least everybody who was 18, 21 and above could have seen them. But for the younger ones, I had to be very mindful, and I wanted to be a good role model for them.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There you go, listeners. Do it at a level that's mind-blowing. Whatever you're going to go and do, whether it's leading, whether it's going to do something else in your career, go and do it at a level that's mind-blowing. Daniel's sharing some wonderful things here, which is pretty cool. Daniel, who's your favourite leader? Now, this person could be alive or from history. Who's your favourite leader and why? For me,
0: it would be uh, the current sheikh and ruler of Dubai, Sheikh Mohammed. And the reason why I really like his leadership style is because he does have a big vision and it is mind-blowing. And if you've been to Dubai or you've seen a documentary on Dubai, it blows your mind. It's actually very hard to comprehend the level of success that they've created there. So in 2007, I was invited to Dubai to become the first professional athlete to go and train and coach wakeboarding. So I went over there. I had the ability to go on television, radio, all the media. So I was treated like a rock star. And I had the ability to coach locals. And I remember there was one local guy. He came down and he said, look, I want my daughter and son to learn how to wakeboard. But he looked at the boat they had and he said, that's not good enough. So the local shake, the small shake, uh, went and bought a brand new boat worth about $120,000 just for his kids to ride on for about three days. <laughs> but the scale is mind-blowing because where we were riding, the waterway was a man-made waterway. It was a six-kilometer dogleg from the Arabian Gulf into the desert, and it was a man-made uh, waterway, and it cost them $6 billion to make it. $6 billion. And the original reason why it was built was for the shake, the head shake, to bring his yacht down and park his yacht in there. So a $6 billion waterway. And that was given us to us to wakeboard on. So we're wakeboarding in the middle of the desert. And literally, there is no difference between the sand dunes and the beach on the sand. It's just sand everywhere. And you've got this $6 billion waterway to play on. And so when I went there in 2007, that place was literally in the middle of nowhere. It was 100 kilometers from Abu Dhabi, 100 kilometers from Dubai. But then if you go back now, everything is built up between the airport into exactly where I was working. And it's huge. You know, they don't build towers. They build skyscrapers. They don't build a plane building. They build a building that is mind-blowing. You know, that uh, Burj Khalifa, you can be 100 kilometers out in the desert and you can see the tip of that thing. And it is huge. And everything is immaculate. They don't have a little budget. They have a huge budget. And they say, we don't want to be average. We want to be the best. And everything there that he's creating is the best. It's like an oasis in the middle of the desert. And it's growing. And there's no limitation to what they perceive as possible. So what we think is possible in the West, they laugh at that. And they say, over here in the Middle East, (laughs) we're going to times that by 10. And they really blow your mind. And it's just constantly changing. It's exciting. It's
1: dynamic. They're thought leaders, they're visionaries, and they're risk takers. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You can see it. And I watched a documentary the other day, actually, on Netflix about it and uh, what they were doing. And it was like, wow. And I think there's there's three or four episodes into the series, I think it is. I haven't watched the others yet. I'm looking forward to it. But I think you're so right in what he's saying. But it's a big vision that he has. Have you actually met him personally? I walked past him once,
0: and oh. I was I was in Emirates Towers, and I was walking along, and I saw the sheik walking to me, and um, this has happened twice in my life, and, and I've missed these opportunities twice. <laughs> he was walking straight towards me, and he didn't have anybody else around him. And I'm thinking to myself, that's the sheik, but you're kind of in shock. And people would actually stop and talk to him and say hello, and he would stop and talk to them. And I was too busy, caught it up in my mind going, oh my gosh, that's the shake. And I kept walking. <laughs> but at time that had happened to me before, I was actually in London Heathrow and a mate of mine was flying from Sydney to London and I met him at the airport and he called me and he said, I'm, I'm about to come through the airport. And so I said, good, I'm waiting at the gate for you. After about 60 minutes, my mate didn't show up, but this other guy walked through the gates and he walked and he stopped about a meter in front of me and he looked at me and he looked at me up and down. And he looked at me up and down, he looked at me up and down, and he was waiting for me to say something to him. And I'm looking at this guy going, gee, you look familiar. Gee, you look familiar. And then he must have realized that I wasn't the person that he was looking for. And so he smiled and walked away. And as he got about uh, three meters away, I said to myself, oh my gosh, that was Neo. <laughs> I couldn't even I couldn't even say the word Keanu Reeves, but there he is in front of me. I just saw Neo from the Matrix. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then Amazing. my rings
0: me, and he says, "Where are you?" And I said, "I'm waiting here at the airport." And he says, "Mate, he goes, I'm not going to be there for another 18 hours." I meant I was just stepping into Sydney Airport.
1: <laughs> oh, so,
0: yes, I've seen the shake. Yes, I've seen Neo, but I missed my opportunity. Bad times.
1: <laughs> if you were to sit on a on a bench pub uh, on a bench in a park with the shake, and you're having a coffee with him, would there be one question you would ask him?
0: Yeah, I'd ask him, "What's not going to change?" about Dubai. Mm, Nice question. What's not going to change? Yeah. And I think the response would be is we are not going to stop um, breaking the boundaries. We will continue breaking the boundaries. Uh, We won't settle for second best. We have to be the biggest. We have to be the best. And also, I think what he'd say is I won't settle Uh, on my people, because as a visionary, he wants a world-class city for his people. So his vision is bigger than him, and it's also going to leave an impact on generations to come. And his father was the same. He's the same. And the things that his son is doing is exactly the same. So I think it would be what's not going to change about Dubai.
1: Yeah, nice question. Well done. Hey, um, the, the show here is called Leadership is Changing. When I say that, the title of the show or that statement, what does that mean to you?
0: Well, for me, leadership is changing means that we're moving into a digital world and these borders are opening up. However, because of things like COVID, our ability to travel is restricted. But I think through COVID, we've realised we don't have to be face-to-face to lead anymore. And I think people are looking at leadership very differently. And I think leadership is going to be very digital, meaning that people are going to follow us and leadership is your ability to get followers. However, these followers, we're probably never going to meet personally in our life. Mm -hmm. I think they're going to follow us online. I think they're going to read our books. I think they're going to come to our seminars. I think they're going to come to our coaching sessions. I think they're going to come to our team meetings, but we'll probably never meet these people in the flesh. In the future, and especially with businesses like we run today, it's impossible to be omnipresent. <laughs> so, uh, this is the closest thing that we'll ever get. And that's what's going to change, in my opinion.
1: Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. i mean, I see a lot, right? Where a lot of people are moving to in the coaching space, training space, and all that. They're doing that, but also people working in businesses, and a lot of them don't know how to lead uh, virtually, which is interesting. But I had a a guy I actually interviewed on one of the episodes and he talked about, you know, how do you lead someone that you've never met? And there's a lot of that right now whereby people have actually employed people the last two years, but they've never met them face to face. It's always been in a virtual digital kind of sense. And I wonder if they don't like them once they meet them face to face, maybe. I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see.
0: Well, I think um, we have to meet people very fast today and- You know, even if we just go back and have a think about selling, selling has changed over the years. Many years ago, back in the '80s, you could go and knock on somebody's door. Hello, my name's Daniel. What do you do here? And you could sit down and have a two-hour conversation. If you went and knocked on a door today, they would say, "What the hell are you doing here?" And if you asked them, um, "What exactly do you do here?", they would kick you out because with technology and the way the digital world is today, is you should be able to research at least eighty to ninety percent of these people or these companies online, you should be able to find out more information about these people than they know about themselves. And when you get into a sales conversation today, the sales conversation needs to take place within 20 minutes because people have this need for speed. Uh, Humans live by the expediency factor. Things have to move fast. And so you've got to be able to present in a very short amount of time. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to bring that back into understanding people. We don't have three or four or five hours to hang out on Zoom every day just to get to know one another. So we've got to figure out a way that we get to know this person intimately without them having to be on the call. And I think I've figured that out. What we use today is we use science and technology to understand people's behaviours. And we're moving away from what's called the golden rule, which is to treat others the way that you would like to be treated. And we're moving into what's called the platinum rule, which is to treat others how they want to be treated. But we've got to utilise science to discover exactly how to do that. So that's where I think it's going to have a big change. Well, wow, the platinum rule...
1: Treat people the way that they want to be treated. Yeah, that's a nice way of putting it.
0: Oh, I like that. Yeah, look, I, I'm aggressive. And and you said that at the start. Ah, he is a competitive person. Ooh. I'm aggressive. Yep. And so what happens is I want people to interact me with me in a competitive way. I don't mind people who are aggressive. I like it. But I'll tell you what: when I've applied the golden rule and say treat others the way I want to be treated, and I use aggression to push people forward, I get a lot of resistance, oh, and it does not work. Hmm. <laughs> so we're going to go to the next level, which is the platinum
1: rule. Yep, 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 nice, very good. Now we're, you know, you just talked about the the way the life is at the moment: technology and science. I'm, I'm seeing that as a fast paced, ever changing world. Data, um, technology, social, and business, and um, add in science as well. How does a leader be successful in that fast-paced, ever-changing world today? What's your thoughts? My thoughts on it is you've got to
0: understand behavioral science. If you want to succeed Mm. as a leader, you have to be an expert in psychology and human behaviors. And the beautiful part about human behavior in connection with big tech is today we have so much information on people's behaviors and the beautiful part about behaviors is that they're observable you can observe people's behavior and if you can understand people's behavior you can predict the way people are going to interact you're going to be able to predict how people approach problems and challenges you can predict how they're going to influence people and contacts you can predict how they're going to uh, manage the pace and the consistency in the environment you can predict how they're going to interact with policies and constraints So understanding science, understanding each person's individual science, then what you can do is you can predict their behaviors. And based on that, understanding human psychology, you can apply the platinum rule and interact with each person how they want to be interacted with and we are seeing this great resignation and i know this was taking place years ago when i was co-leading a team of 17,000 cabin crew at emirates airline there was huge levels of dissatisfaction not necessarily against the company but against a corporate structure in these big teams i think emirates airline was a total of about 68,000 people when i was there people just said i feel like a number Hmm. And that's a sad state of affair for any corporation. It's not targeted towards Emirates. It's targeted towards these big organizations. So when I became a leader, I found that people were swapping their flights. And what that meant was they might have this beautiful flight to Hamburg or to New York, and they would give away that flight to do a turnaround with me to Bangalore, India at 2 a.m. in the morning. And they'd say, Daniel, I swapped my New York flight to come and work with you. And I said, why would you do such a crazy thing? they said because we heard you were a really good leader and would have a really good flight so what i would do is i would seek to understand them as an individual i would understand and know them intimately by the end of the flight i'd know their names and instead of calling them a number a staff number i'd interact with them personally and i had this great community of people who would follow me from flight to flight and they said if you fly with daniel it's going to be the best flight ever And almost eight years after I resigned from my career, I was flying from Birmingham to Dubai and I was in business class on the A380. And I was welcomed onto the aircraft by the Emirates crew. And this guy stopped me. He said, you're Daniel Tolson. And I said, I know. And this was even before he looked at my passport. This was before he even looked at my ticket. He said, do you remember me? And I said, yes, I said, I do. I said, you came on your very first flight with me, your first flight out of college. And we did a turnaround to India. He said, and you still remember me? And I said, yes. And he said, you are the best leader I've ever seen. He said, I have done these flights for the past eight years and I've never had that experience. And what he did for me, he rolled out the entire red carpet. He made sure all the 25 crew knew who I was. And he had photos with me. He talked to me about the flight we had and what he had learned from it and how he applied that into his role today. And he had taken on those leadership principles that I shared with him. And he was having that same impact. So I know that you can have a massive impact in a big team. You know, All you've got to do is have an impact on one person and you get that ripple effect. So it's quite exciting. Isn't it
1: a powerful... Yeah, well, it is exciting but it's how powerful our thoughts or our words and our actions with people are I mean we need to be careful what we're doing but you know still be out there and and be bold and go out there and be mind-blowing but at the same time our actions and our words have weight and we need to get out there and do the right thing and be there with people and it's just amazing I mean that, that's awesome you got that's that's credit to you and your brand as well though Daniel it's pretty
0: good our personal brand uh, proceeds and predicts all of our results. And for many years, even when I owned a clothing company, I had to work on my personal brand. And a part of personal branding is called the law of visibility. You have to be visible as a leader. People have to see you. And I was on a flight from Dubai to Malta. And I was on this flight, and I was walking through the cabin in my uniform, and I heard this voice from the other side of the cabin say, Danny Danger! And I, now, that's what people would call me. They'd call me Daniel Danger when I was wakeboarding. And I looked around, and there's this guy swinging his arms in there. He says, Danny Danger. And I went, oh, my gosh, Mick. Now, this young guy who was on the aircraft, he used to aspire to ride like me and my brother. And he would come down to the river with his video camera and film us wakeboard. And he'd put us all over social media. And so uh, this was probably about 15 years after I had seen him for the last time. And he remembered me and I'm at, you know, we're at 40,000 feet and he's screaming out, Danny Danger. (laughs) So I, I rolled out the red carpet for him and got him absolutely plastered and he was legless by the time we got off the flight. <laughs> but that uh, personal branding and your reputation is so critical as a leader. It takes you your whole life to get it. And once you get it, you've got to maintain it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, Daniel, we've been talking about leaders and through the lenses of leaders. If we would change our lenses now and start thinking about employees, both of us are entrepreneurs, but also are, we've been employees in the past as well. And we know people who are employees today. Employees' expectations of leaders, have they changed?
0: Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. The latest research shows that 50% of people who are considering leaving the job uh, is leaving the job because of the leader. Hmm. So the leader has a critical role and people don't necessarily want to be a millionaire. And let me let me explain what I mean by that. When I worked with Emirates Airline, we used to have this joke, would say we have the champagne lifestyle on the lemonade wage. And it was a beautiful lifestyle because we got to travel first class, business class, stay in five-star hotels. Uh, We'd have our uniforms washed. We'd have chauffeurs take us wherever we wanted. And we had this champagne lifestyle, yet we could only afford seven up. (laughs) So what I learned from leadership is people have perceptions of what they want. And the job of the leader is to understand what the individual wants and get the company to make a contribution in their life. See, for many years, we've said, don't ask what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. But it's flipped around now. It's 180 degrees. Uh, the country should be asking, what can we do for you? The company should be asking, what can we do for you? You're going to be here for 2,000 hours per year, helping us achieve our goals. What can we do? to help you achieve your goals. And the leader has to understand that for some people that this role that this person's in right now is just a vehicle for them to achieve their personal goals. And so they have to understand, the leader has to understand what is this person's personal goal and how can I make a contribution to their life? I think that's changing and we're seeing it in the younger generation. And if today's leaders don't harness that, then there'll be mutiny in the company.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I love it. I love what you're saying. Now I'm going to get you to get your crystal ball out here. And we're going to talk about the future. Oh, can I get uh, where the tarot do you see leadership? Out? Yeah, if you want to, no problem. <laughs> where do you see leadership being in five years?
0: I think leadership is going to become more situational. Meaning that instead of just having one leader in the business, everybody in the business can be a leader. And in situational leadership, it's the person who has the most knowledge or skill or the right attitude at any given time, steps forward and leads. So for example, let's say we're going on a road trip, and I'm a really skilled driver. And so we're driving down the freeway, and I'm really good on the freeway. But all of a sudden, there's a mudslide, and we need somebody who can be really good driving a full drive in slippery conditions. So what you do is temporarily, somebody who can drive in these conditions steps forward and takes control and you navigate through that new terrain, you get through that mudslide and then the roles reverse and you swap back over. I think we're going to see a lot of that and it's going to come about by understanding people's behavior. For me, I'm super competitive and I'm really good with a company in a turnaround situation because I'm competitive. I want to win. I want to murder the competition. I want to bring in the new sales. That's my sweet spot. But for a company that is just in a maintenance mode, that's not the right place for me to lead because they say, we've hit the level we desire and now we just want to maintain this week after week, month after month. So knowing that about myself, I would have to step back as a leader and get a more of a steady leader to come in who can produce predictable results day in, day out for the next 20 years. And so I believe based on our behaviors, we're going to see a lot of situational leaders in the future.
1: Yeah, fantastic. Daniel, all i got to say to you here is, hey, thank you for joining us on today's show. If our listeners are wanting to get a hold of you, where should they go?
0: come and join me. I have a masterclass that I run every week, and it's called Unleashed Masterclass. And there's three things we focus on. It's eliminating these fears, doubts, and limiting beliefs. It's that six inches between the ears that we work on every single week, and that's called unleashedmasterclass.com.
1: Awesome. Daniel, once again, thank you for joining me on the show today. It's been brilliant having you here as a guest. Thank you so much. Well, listeners, here you go. An episode that was mind-blowing. Hey, listeners, what we as leaders know to be true is that change is constant. Change is incredibly scary, especially with the unknown and unfamiliar territory. It's time to adapt in our fast-moving world when leadership is changing. Look out for the episodes as they're being released, download them, have a listen, put a review and a rating. Feel free to share them with your friends, your family, and your network. Hey, if there's any feedback you'd like to give me about the show, or if there's a question you have for the Ask Dennis Freestyle episode, then send me an email, dennis at leadingchangepartners.com. Hey, listeners, it's always a pleasure being with you. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, bye for now. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leadership is Changing with your host, Dennis Giannoutsas.
0: Each week, we and our guests provide information and insights through exploring leading change, inspiring executives and leaders to adapt and lead a bigger game in a fast-moving world.